Thank you everyone for joining me on the second episode of the Helping Hand podcast. Today I am joined with Dr. Jillian Elmore and later on this episode we are also going to be bringing on Jack and Pongo, some clients and friends of Helping Hand. But in this episode we wanted to showcase some of the successes as well as the story of our Helping Hand clinic. So with that being said, I will let Jillian introduce herself. Jillian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kevin. I'm excited to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, so I guess we will just dive right into it. I understand that you are the director of the clinical service here at Helping Hand. So just to provide some brief background information, would you like to share some of the therapies that we offer? Sure. So our outpatient clinic is really for individuals across the lifespan. So by that, I mean birth through 99 years of age or older. Um, but we are very heavily focused on pediatrics in our clinic. But the therapies we do provide right now are occupational therapy, speech therapy, feeding therapy, and then we also do groups that are run by our therapists. And I am super excited that in March, we are also going to be adding um, counseling to our outpatient clinic. We're always looking for ways to grow. Um, hopefully, we'll be adding behavioral therapy by the end of this year as well. Very exciting. I'm definitely gonna, I'm definitely eager to talk more about counseling as we uh, dive further into our podcast. But um, one thing that I do know, and I'm sure some of our listeners know after listening to the first podcast is that something about Helping Hand is that we're rooted with genuine care and education, and we try to apply that value in our programs. So my first question for you is, how does your team ensure that, um, you know, their patients and the people that they care for are receiving that genuine care? Yeah, the biggest thing that we do differently at Helping Hand is by having that individualized care to each client that walks in the door. So every therapist starts by meeting a client and talking with that client and their family to understand what their goals of care are. So, you know, every therapist has an idea when we see a client or a child of what we think that child might need to work on but it is never up to the therapist to determine what that is. We really have the family and the client advocate and speak for themselves and give them the opportunity to come in the doors and say, you know what, I really am not worried about this, but I really want to focus on these things over here. And that's what our therapist will focus on. So it's very individual to each client and not at all kind of a cookie cutter therapeutic medical based approach, which is how some other clinics operate. We really try to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation and genuine connection with each family so that we make sure we're fulfilling the goals that they want to receive. I know that when you are meeting with these families one-on-one, -on -one, you have something that you consider your goals of care. And it's basically what you want to work for and strive for when um, providing mm -hmm. your therapy and services to those that you care for. Um, when you are engaging in that one-on-one -on -one with these families, how do the clinicians identify these goals of care? Yeah, there's a couple different ways that we identify them. When a client first comes in, part of our intake process is we ask the parent in one of the forms what their kind of general goals that they have for their child. And they can be things as broad as, I want my child to speak more. I want them to be better behaved, or it can be really specific. Like I want them to be able to write a five word sentence. It just depends on the family. Um, and so we'll start with that where they can get kind of it out on paper. Then we also have a formal kind of interview conversation where the clinician and the parent talk together. 
And then there's also standardized assessments that we give so that the clinicians can determine where the child falls on, um, you know, and compared to norms of that kid's age with different skill areas like speech, language, um, self-care skills, sensory processing. And then that's information that we share with the parent ourselves too, so that the parent can get a sense of kind of where their child is at on the spectrum of development. And then after that evaluation process, the therapist and the family kind of come back together again and with all that information identify, okay, what are the top three or four really kind of big picture goals that we wanna work on? And we call those long-term goals. And then we create short-term goals that are really the ways in which we're going to achieve the long-term goal. And those can be edited, changed, adjusted at any time. Um, our families are really involved in the therapy session. So they come every week and either sit in their child's therapy session or sit out in the waiting room. But the clinician really has that ability to have a pulse on the child and the family each week and kind of check in and say, hey, how are things going? Um, and make adjustments as needed. As you shed light on that, I think it's really interesting to notice from an outsider's perspective, so to speak, that you know every patient is receiving that individualized care. And I think you really drove that point home when you were revealing how those um, goals of care are being provided and identified. Circling back a little bit, just back onto the topic of genuine care, one thing that I mm -hmm. think that the clinic does really well that exemplifies genuine care is that we provide our services to families who are underserved in our local communities. Um, and yeah. I think that's one of the most impactful things that we that I would love to mention. So with that being said, is there any insight that you can give onto how we provide that care for those who are underserved? Yeah, I am really proud of all that Helping Hand does to serve those that are underserved because that is a hallmark of our clinic that sets us apart from other clinics. And the biggest way that the outpatient clinic does this is by accepting clients who have public aid insurance. And by that, I mean state-funded insurance like Medicaid. Many medical providers in general, not just therapy, but many medical providers do not accept public aid because the reimbursement is really low. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of red tape associated with it. But Helping Hand has never let those factors impact the ability to take on those clients with public aid. And it's just so important to me and to our clinicians that when somebody walks through the door, we're not viewing them from the perspective of money or reimbursement. We're viewing them from a humanistic perspective of someone who needs our help. And um I am so proud to work somewhere that really values that and getting to see the impact that it can have on somebody who has maybe been on a wait list for two years somewhere else because they can't get in anywhere. Um, and so many of the families that we serve who are on public aid have faced a lot of barriers to their care just from getting access to care. So we really pride ourselves on being that pinnacle of support for individuals who have maybe been overlooked or underserved um, throughout their journey of having a disability and hoping that we're kind of that beacon of light to them and can provide the services that they've desperately needed. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I think the fact that Helping Hand is able to provide uh, those services to those communities, especially those who are underserved is really spectacular work. Um, yeah, I know I that as Director of Clinical Services, you oversee many of the clinicians. And I know that we have a broad variety of the therapies that we offer. Um, with that being said, is there a general piece of advice 
or insight that you can offer to families at home who are watching who know someone or are caring for someone with an intellectual or developmental disability? Yeah, I think that, you know, when you're a parent of a child with a developmental disability, I think that you are used to being told that your child has limits on their potential. Generally, starting from the time your child's born, these families may have been told, your child's not gonna walk on time. They may never speak to you. They may never do this. And it's always shrouded with this idea that they're not gonna live up to the same potential as somebody else. And so I think that, you know, at Helping Hand, we really try to combat that belief by saying, well, maybe they're not going to have that potential, but they are going to have this potential that you and them want to have. And just trying to readjust the mindset um, and take some of those limitations off. So my advice would really be to um, seek out the help that you need, despite being told maybe that it's not going to have an impact or that um, there's nothing that can be done. I think that's a, a common thing that we have our families tell us that maybe a doctor at some point, um, even a teacher may have said at one point, but the beauty of therapy is that it can really be so catered and individualized to where somebody is at in their life. And it can really meet both a client's goals and the parent's goals. So it's a nice like sweet spot between everybody winning. Um, but I think some parents are just so beat down from being told that your child's not going to do this or they're not going to do that or they're going to have trouble doing this that sometimes it almost seems pointless to reach out for help I think for some people um, so my advice would really be to just seek out the help get a screening reach out and just ask for information from helping hand or from any type of service provider just to see what can be done um, to really take that those potential, you know, limitations off of them and just see what can happen. I think you emphasizing to just reach out is very critical. Um, I know later in this episode, we're going to be meeting with Jack and Holly, um, one of our clients and his mom. And I'm just providing that context because um, I know that one of the things that Holly mentioned was, I posed the similar question to her, but I wanted to know the perspective from a mom, from you know a direct family member who cares. And one of the things that she said that almost mirrored your response was, she said, talk to the other families and parents in the waiting room as you wait. And when she said that, she provided a lot of context as to how like she was actually able to find resources based on those families, whether they were virtual resources like Facebook groups where they were in-person resources. And I thought that was really a powerful moment that she shared because I know it's very shy and timid sometimes and you don't really want to go out of your way to. It's uh, isolating. It's totally very isolating. isolating. Mm -hmm. But yeah. when she said that, she also mentioned that like she's gotten so, she's some of the most valuable insights and resources that she pulled was actually just interacting with other families. And I think that was really powerful to hear. And then I love how you also mentioned that, you know, some others may shroud their um, diagnosis by already passively laying out these limitations when that's yeah. simply not true. Um, on the same topic of Jack and Holly, like I know that Jack has received therapy from our clinic and one of the most um, 
progress that I've seen is the fact that he's also able to public speak now. Um, so yeah. for those who don't know, um, Jack, Holly, and I will go to local schools in our community, and we basically shed light on Helping Hand, our mission, as well as just push some more um, diversity into school places. Because in these schools, these students do not necessarily have the uh, engagement to interact with someone with a intellectual mm -hmm. or developmental disability. So having the opportunity to do that, I think is really huge in our community, especially when you're able to have an audience that's young. I think it really makes an yes. impact on them. Um, so I just wanted to share that because I thought it went hand in hand with what you said, because I know that, you know, Jack has provided so much, not only to Helping Hand, but to the local community. And it's thanks to the therapies that he has received. Yeah, definitely. And Jack and Holly are an awesome pillar of helping hand to show what we're all about and taking in Jack's personal goals and mom's goals and just putting it all together to make magic. It's really cool. Um, as we move forward, I know that our clinic is really proud to use and display the latest technologies and to elevate the care that we offer. Would you be able yes. to talk about some of the resources that we have at our disposal and how we use those to provide quality therapy? Sure. Yeah. Over the last couple of years, really since COVID, um, you know, starting to come back from that and recognizing an immense need to use more technology and meet the needs of where kids are at in this day and age, we have really worked hard to become on the cutting edge of technology because we don't want to be a mom and pop shop of just having the bare minimum. We want to be on the forefront of therapeutic advancements and making sure that we're providing all of the resources available to all of our clients. And so a few of the ways in which we do this, the biggest I think is through a hearing lab that we have in the outpatient clinic. And so several years ago, we received grant funding from the Special Kids Foundation and we were able to purchase audiometers, which is the actual device that you use to test hearing. And all of our speech therapists are trained on how to do hearing tests. And it's really awesome because most clinics do not offer that. Many kids get hearing tested at school, but our kiddos with a disability either do not receive that testing because they're not in school yet, or they're unable to sit for the standard test at school because they have trouble focusing or they move too much and the result will just be inconclusive. And then those kids never get tested again because there's not really specialized providers that offer that for kids with um, disabilities. So that's been a really great service to add because it just feeds into our model of wraparound care that we have, making sure that everybody that we serve is getting everything that we can possibly provide to them. So that's pretty exciting. We have some pretty tacky equipment related to hearing screenings and our therapists looking into ears of our kiddos to see the functions of it and the structure and just in general, another way to make sure that a kid isn't slipping through the cracks. Um, so that's a really exciting advancement that we have. Another one is that over the past several years, we've had a couple of therapists go and get trained to be a feeding therapist. And so um, an occupational and a speech therapist have to go to it, separate training in order to be really highly qualified to perform feeding therapy. And so we have three clinicians currently in the outpatient clinic that provide feeding therapy. And we have different assistive tech devices and just general equipment that we use for feeding. And that is really to provide care to kids who are picky eaters, um, have 
issues within their mouth that prevent them from chewing or swallowing. Could be kids who are fed with a G-tube who are just learning to eat for the first time. Um, so that's a pretty cool service that we have too, because many of our kids, especially our kiddos with autism, have a lot of feeding troubles. So it's just another adjunct service that we have to help meet all those families' needs. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm really excited that we're going to be offering counseling in the outpatient clinic, and um, that's going to be starting in March, and that's going to be with a bilingual counselor. And that, again, is really just to elevate that care that we're providing to make sure that we are not excluding anybody, that we're trying our very best to meet the needs of all of the clients that we serve, um, and really just elevating that care, not just to the clients we serve, but to the families as well. Two things that I want to touch on based on your responses, the feeding therapy, as well as the counseling and bilingual services. So in regard to the feeding therapy, um, I understand that we have a bunch of awesome technology as well as equipment. Uh, one thing that I also wanted to mention was that we also have um, the feeding therapy room. So for those mm -hmm. who do not know, um, basically to stimulate a kitchen and an everyday home environment um, for those who are receiving the feeding therapy, uh, we have a helping hand kitchen that's part of the clinic and it's basically set up and designed exactly like a kitchen at home. Um, have mm -hmm. you noticed a um, any positives bringing that resource to feeding therapy? Have you noticed that um, in any way being in that stimulated environment helps kids get more um, dedicated to their therapy? Definitely, because kids do not want to perform in a medical environment. Um, we know our kiddos do best when they're in their home environment. And if we can't be at their home, the next best thing is to simulate that home environment. And so really taking out the medical aspect, although it is a medical service, we're taking out that medical component and we're really making it family friendly, homey, less intimidating for the child so that they feel like when they're coming into the environment, it doesn't feel scary and it doesn't feel like work. It feels like they're at home and it feels like play. And so that really helps our kids to be able to decrease some of that anxiety because a hefty majority of our picky eaters have a lot of anxiety associated with eating. And so we really try to make it kind of as calm um, and collected as an environment as we possibly can. Um, and also having the family come in with them so that we're kind of simulating that like family mealtime experience. And in regards to, you know, some positive things we've seen with it, that's such an overlooked service because oftentimes pediatricians might not um, refer a kid if the parent just says, oh, my kid's a picky eater. Oftentimes pediatricians will say, oh, okay, maybe they'll grow out of it. Um, or it'll just kind of be brushed under the rug, or it's not necessarily seen as a red flag because the parent might not speak to how much it impacts their family life. But you know, being able to provide a service for a child who's never been able to sit at the table with their family and eat or has never tasted more than a couple foods in their life, that might not seem like a big deal in the masses, but to that individual family, that's life altering to finally have your child come and sit at the table with you and eat. Um, and so, you know, the testimonials from our kiddos who have graduated from feeding therapy or who are currently in feeding therapy and getting to hear about families getting to go out to a restaurant for the first time in their life as a family, that is so impactful and something I'm so proud that we get to be a part of. One thing that I was going to ask in regard to the 
feeding therapy kitchen is, is it common to bring um, like the family member who accompanied the child uh, alongside in that therapy just to further immerse um, the patient? Definitely. We oftentimes will ask parents to come back because feeding therapy is really about educating the parent to be able to take those skills and bring them into the home environment because obviously the therapist is not going to be there during mealtimes at home. So there are instances, depending on the anxiety level of the kids, sometimes at first the parents will sit out so that the child can just become more comfortable being in that environment. But oftentimes we really want the parent to be back there and involved because we want them to observe what the therapist is doing, imitate the therapist, that they can then take those tools and bring them back into the home environment and create that carryover between therapy and home. Awesome. Um, the last thing before we move forward is the bilingual services. Yeah. I think that's a huge addition to Helping Hand as well as the services we offer. Um, do you envision that this addition will entice more families to take advantage of Helping Hand services? I hope so. Um, I do believe it will because we do have many of our um, individuals that are served in the outpatient clinic. We do have a lot of Spanish speaking families where maybe the child is fluent in both English and Spanish, but the parent is not. And that really limits the parent's ability to really get involved in the therapy process in the way that they would like to. And so my hope is that this will open the door for us to add more bilingual services and just continue to serve those who are underserved and continue to provide that wraparound care and make sure that there's no group that we're underserving or that over, or that we're overlooking um, and just continue to provide that care in the best way we can. So I'm really hopeful that it will. Jillian, before we move forward, is there anything else regarding the therapies offered or the clinic that you'd like to share? Sorry, it, Kevin, it cut out for a second, right? When you were about to talk, can you say that again? Oh, it's no worries. I was going to say, before we move forward, is there anything regarding the therapies or the services we offer or anything about the clinic that you would like to share? I think that something that I would like to share is that all of our clinicians in the outpatient clinic are really specialized in working with the population of DD, which is not incredibly common also. Um, kind of going back to that non-cookie cutter approach that we have, all of our clinicians are really highly skilled in working with not only kids with autism or Down syndrome or CP, but individuals who maybe have multiple conditions, um, who have psychosocial things going on in their lives, um, are from a low socioeconomic status, just our clinicians are very specialized in kind of treating all of those factors that may come into play. And I think that's another thing that makes us really special and sets us apart. I think you emphasizing the expertise and successes of our clinicians is actually a great segue into our next topic, um, because I understand that for those also who are unaware, the Helping Hand Clinic has a Facebook group, a private Facebook group dedicated uh -huh. to the families involved that they serve. Um, and one thing that I do know that the clinic has been um, providing our um, opportunities to engage with the families um, based on various topics. Uh, so I know that there was a monthly parent night. There was also a sensory processing info night. And then simply two, uh, on two different dates, there was a parent support group. Um, and all of these mm -hmm. were um, promoted on that family-oriented Facebook page. Um, 
kicking yeah. us off. So on January 24th, we had the monthly parent night. Um, could you just shed some light onto what were some of the uh, more notable questions or concerns that were highlighted and then any advice or insights that you gave to those concerns? Yeah, the purpose of our parent nights is really to allow an opportunity for parents and families to ask any questions about really any therapeutic topics that are on their mind that they feel they need more support with. Because oftentimes at the end of a weekly therapy session, there's maybe five minutes that parents and the clinicians can really talk face to face after the child comes out into the waiting room or on a virtual therapy session. And so these are really just meant to give parents more opportunity to speak up about topics that maybe they're unfamiliar with or they're struggling with or they just need support with. And so on our most recent night, you know, we start the parent night by just letting the families ask questions. So there's no prearranged topic or idea. We kind of let the families lead it. And on our most recent one, it was really focused about picky eating and troubled eating habits because one of the clinicians who was facilitating that is one of our feeding therapists. So she was able to give some advice and strategies about families who are struggling with picky eating. Um, and then the group also talked about self-care and independent living skills like potty training and getting dressed and was able to offer some supports about how to structure a potty training routine, um, how to go through the routine of getting your child dressed in the morning if they're just learning that skill and just kind of give them some of those concrete ways to learn those skills. And then it ended with kind of talking about some tips on how parents can support their own general self-care as well. Um, as we know, that's something that any parent overlooks, but especially a, a parent of a child with a disability, they often overlook their own self-care and just wanting to make sure that, again, we're providing care to the whole family and not just the client. I think um, going off of that, the providing care to the whole family, I think, is heavily emphasized and is very apparent, especially when you recognize that not only are you providing the very obvious therapies that Helping Hand offers, but you're also having these outreach opportunity events to further um, strengthen that connection with families, as well as being yeah. that resource for them. Um, as we move forward, there was another uh, opportunity that you guys held. It was on January 29th. It was the sensory processing info night. I know mm -hmm. many individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities have sensory se sensitivities, um, mm -hmm. So would you be able to shed some light as to what this specific opportunity entailed, as well as any um, resources or insights that were provided to the families? Yeah, so our lead OT in the clinic, Amy, generally runs this parent info night about once a year, usually in the beginning of the year. And she really just works to educate families on identifying the sensory needs in their own child and then helping parents understand how they can help their children to better self-regulate. And she does this through giving tools, um, strategies, and equipment examples that can be used in the home environment. A big topic that was discussed most recently um, in the info session on January 29th was about screen time and ways to reduce screen time um, and how that impacts a child's sensory system. So Amy was able to provide um, some ideas on this topic and ways to reduce that to improve that at home. Kind of on the topic of screen time, I know that some of these opportunities to connect with families are either virtual or they're in person. Mm -hmm. 
In regard to that, have you seen one method to be more successful than the other in terms of not only getting an audience, but also providing those resources to an audience? Do you think um, your team prefers those in-person opportunities or the virtual opportunities? I know specifically for this sensory night, Amy usually prefers to offer it in person so that she can have the tools and the equipment in front of her and let families touch and feel and, and understand and maybe problem solve with Amy and she can demonstrate techniques with them. Um, but we are also not ignorant to the fact that many of our families have multiple children. They often have multiple different therapies or extracurricular activities or sports or work schedules that they have to manage. and we have seen a decrease in the engagement when an in-person session is held as opposed to a virtual session. So we are working to find a way to better simulate that in-person experience, but offer it virtually, whether it's done by recording an in-person session so that they can a family can still see the tools that are being used um, or offer it both in a live virtual format and in-person um, or just pre-record topics that are really catered to that virtual design there definitely seems to be a higher enjoyment and um, engagement when it's held virtually just because of the demanding schedules that many of our families have. Right. I'm sure it's also a lot more accessible for them as well. With that being said, before I move forward onto the other opportunity for outreach that the clinicians have, I just thought I'd plug one more time that, you know, the clinic does have that private Facebook group. So if any families from the clinic are tuning in and this is the first time that you may be hearing about this Facebook group, I definitely, definitely um, encourage you to join that Facebook group. I know not only are the clinicians part of the group, but numerous other families as well. So it's not uncommon for someone to reach out with a question or ask for resources. So if you ever need another resource or just a community that will provide a little bit of support, I think it is a great place to be. So I just wanted to plug that one more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, lastly, we have the parent support group. This one was a little unique because it was held on uh, two separate dates. I know mm-hmm. one of the uh, one of the dates was focused on enhancing a healthy life balance. And then the other mm-hmm. date was focused on uh, coping skills for children. With those mm-hmm. two topics being laid out, what are some resources, insights, or recommendations that you would provide yourself in regard to those topics? Yeah, and the idea of a healthy life balance, a tip that I regularly share with parents is that parents need to get themselves on a routine and a schedule first before they can teach their child how to do that. Um, And that's really hard because many of our families struggle with their child being on a good routine and having a good structure. Um, just based on the various disabilities that we see in the clinic. But when a parent is dysregulated and not on a routine themselves, it's so, so challenging to try to get your child on that routine too. So just some advice that I give is trying to help a parent get themselves, even if it's something very simple, get themselves a little bit more structure in their life to create that balance for themselves so that then they can teach their child to do the same. Um, So then we're helping the whole family unit as opposed to just focusing on what the child needs. Um, It's helping the parent be able to gain those skills too. Awesome. I think uh, what you shared is the the parents need to have a life balance first before the kids. And I think that's very critical and crucial 
in regard to that, now focusing more on the children, is there any coping skills oriented for children that you would recommend? Yeah, honestly, kind of going along with um, what I just said, I think something that sometimes parents overlook, and I'm a parent myself, and I do this too, um, we overlook the fact that we have to be regulated as a parent before we can regulate our child and help them cope. So again, children are not born inherently knowing what to do. They need to be taught these skills. And so a parent really needs to learn how to regulate themselves because it is nearly impossible, and I'm speaking from experience here, but it is nearly impossible to regulate a child when you yourself are dysregulated. It's not possible. So one of the ways that we teach coping skills for kids is really teaching the parent how to regulate themselves so that when the child is dysregulated or experiencing stress, anxiety, emotional dysregulation, the parent is then able to provide that attachment and mentorship and coaching um, so that the kid can then learn those skills on their own. Um, because if a parent is feeling really stressed out, really anxious, um, just out of control themselves, and your child is experiencing that too, that is when it tends to bubble up and create uh, you know, chaos in the whole family unit. So it's really about teaching the parent how to cope themselves so that then they can teach those skills to their child. My last question is just to follow up with what you just mentioned, but let's say there is a parent who is overwhelmed and they need to be regulated. Is there any um, advice that you would offer to someone who are in those shoes that just need to be regulated a little bit? Yeah, I think that, you know, first and foremost, as we said earlier, reaching out for help. So if your child already gets therapy at Helping Hand or somewhere else, reaching out to the clinician of your child to get tips and strategies for yourself too, because oftentimes some of that stress and anxiety is coming from the lived experience of being a parent. Um, and so the therapist can offer tips and strategies on how to make the family environment and unit a little calmer and um, give you strategies to try at home. I think as we mentioned earlier, um, Kevin, or you mentioned talking about how it can be so isolating to be the parent of a child with a disability. And so I would also advise any parents to just try to get connected with other families, whether that's at Helping Hand and you're connecting with people in the waiting room, you're connecting through our Facebook page, you're connecting with your therapist to get connected with other families too, um, or through other extracurricular activities out there for kids with developmental disabilities and just finding ways to walk this journey with families who are going through the same thing as you that you're not feeling that sense of isolation and you have somebody else to lean on. I think that was incredibly well said, you know, just find those connections, build those bridges and more resources will naturally come with that as well as support. So I think I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, but with <laughs> that being said, that is all I had laid out for us today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you wanted to share? Um. I just want to share that I'm so proud of the work that the clinicians in the outpatient clinic are doing. And if you're a family who's listening and you need help or this resonated with you in any way, the first step you can do is go to our website and just reach out through filling out an intake form. Even if it's a something, something as simple as just needing advice, our therapists do free screenings all the time, are more than willing to talk to a parent on the phone and just work through what's going on and see if a child even needs to be evaluated in the first place. 
um, or point families to resources that maybe would be better served for their situation. So again, reach out if any of this resonated with you because we're here to help and we would love to serve you and your family. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode today, Jillian. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. All right, moving forward, we have Jack and Holly joining us. But aside from Well, thank you for joining us as we move forward on episode two of the Helping Hand podcast. Currently, I'm joined with Holly and Jack. Uh, previously, we just had Jillian on, and she is the director of clinical services. Um, with Jack here, Jack is actually one of the clinic's patients, and Jack's family is also strongly tied with Helping Hand in our mission. So it's a pleasure to have you guys here and bring you on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so first and foremost, I think for audiences who aren't familiar with Jack, I think what might be um, exciting the most is Jack's best friend, Pongo. So maybe we just jump right into that. Jack, uh, do you want to share a little bit about Pongo when you got him? Uh, how old were you? Uh, you were about, you're about, you've had him for eight years because he's eight years old. Yeah. You had him, and you got him when you were just about five months old. Yeah. And you're how old now? Um, Twenty. Twenty. Seven. Yeah. So you were about nineteen. And um, and he would. They were matched at the VIP. Very important pooches. Very important pooches. Yes. You can do that. They're they're in Oswego, Naperville, and. Um, and they were they were matched as part of the program, and um, he, they tried out a variety of of puppies right. that were in training, and they were a match. Oh, so it was almost like a screening process. Yes. So they paired the dog with who is best suited for them. Yes. Very nice. Yes. Okay, I did not know that. Yes. So what, Jack? How did Pongo help you? He did not He did. What are his two special So so do you wanna do you wanna share what some of the things he does? Yeah. One of the things that he does is he provides deep deep compression. So Jack, can I give him an up so he does an up up, so he is like a 55 pound lap dog. Okay. He, he will get all the way up in his lap. He will also go up, up, up. Then go all the way up, up to his shoulders. Up, up. To his shoulders. Right. So he will provide deep compression all the way up to his shoulders as well. And then to provide any context for listeners who maybe aren't aware of how this helps someone, uh, so it is not uncommon for some individuals to have uh, sensory sensitivities. Uh, so I know Pongo helps with that. Um, an alternative when you don't have a dog that I know is common is a weighted blanket, yes. right? Yeah. So I just wanted to provide that context because that is one of, it's a strategy. You know, it is a resource and it's a strategy. It's not just something that the dog is doing. Right, and and he does sleep with, he does sleep with Jack at night too. So mm -hmm. that's one of the things that he goes on his nightly walk, and then he 
immediately goes right upstairs because Jack's already asleep, and he'll immediately go right upstairs and sleep mm -hmm. right up, right next to him. Aw, that's cute. That's cool. Yeah. And then just to elaborate on the topic of sensory yeah. sensitivities, uh, so that, that is pretty common yeah. uh, for some individuals. And then for Jack as well, Jack, I know sometimes you wear your sunglasses, yeah. right? Yeah. So you have your sunglasses right here ahead of us. Um, Jack, how do the sunglasses help you? With your sun. It helps with the sun. Yeah, like, and the bright indoor lights, right? The, the fluorescent lights yeah. are... But don't need in Bali sometimes, like the Lion King, I bring just in case. But... Right. So you don't need them all the time, but you just bring them when you need for when you need them. Yeah, I understand. So how has Helping Hand helped you, not only with Jack, but also with trying to get your story out to our community? Um, so Jack has been part of Helping Hand since he was 15 years old. And he's... Um, Helping Hand has been immensely helpful. Um, he's been part of the uh, been part of the academic community um, as a as a student. He has been part of the therapeutic community as a, as a patient, um, and now he's part of the um, the outward community right. as um, as someone who is an ambassador, ambassador. and yes. um, who is teaching others about what it's like to be a person with who is differently able. Um, who Jack? How would you describe yourself? A person first, and someone with autism. A person first, and then someone with autism. And he shares his story and his journey of how he's. You know how he has grown up in his community, and um, what he's learned, and what it's like to be him, and um, and and probably more about your the things that are the same than they are different, right? Right. I can tell you when I started, I so it was how, but. Um, but I'm getting closer and closer. I, 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 um, I'm trying to stay in the same schedule. Trying to have a routine a little bit. Yeah, I'm trying to have a routine. What are some of the things that are similar about, about you and the community that you speak with? When you, when you talk to some of the students at some of the elementary schools. What are some of the things that they act And whether and do you say, um, do any of you have anxiety? Yeah. And do they raise their hands? Yeah. Do you say, does anybody like hot dogs? Yeah. Do they raise their hands? And then immediately everybody has something in common, right? And it's a way to like bridge that connection between our audience and our presenters. Yes. So yes. To shed some light on this for those unaware, what Jack, Pongo, Holly, and I do on occasion is we'll actually go to schools in the local community, and we will speak to um, usually like 6th, 7th, 8th graders and share um, Helping Hands mission, and then Jack also shares his story. And it's just a way to not only get our message out there, but to also share some more diversity amongst those who may not be in contact with that or may not have the opportunity to receive that type of exposure. 
And I think um, when the past few times where we've done the presentation, the students have the ability afterwards to ask questions to you guys. And yes. some of the questions are really powerful and good. Yes. Um, and then with that being said, so most of the questions are oriented around Jack or Pongo. Um, because within these presentations, Jack also shares his story, almost in a format similar to this. Yes. Um, so with Jack's story, maybe we can start with when Jack was first diagnosed, how did you go about finding resources? Well, my first resource, um, this goes back very early on, um, my first resource was actually my godmother. Um, Jack was not speaking um, when he should be speaking. And we went through the normal channels of going through your doctor and going through hearing tests. And my godmother was a special ed teacher. And she said, um, you know, when you can get tested through your, speak, your school district mm -hmm. and make sure that when you are go through the school district that they understand he receives services when he's three, that he's not tested when he's three. Gotcha. And I found that very interesting. That was kind of part of the beginning of our journey, um, educationally. Um, from a medical standpoint, um, he, our journey started um, with the hearing test and we found out that he had some, um, it started out with apraxia of speech. Okay. And then it morphed into global dyspraxia, which is a motor planning disorder throughout his body. And that further prepared us for his eventual diagnosis into autism. We had a very hard time putting him on the spectrum because we were cherry picking at the time. Um, and at the time he was diagnosed um, with apraxia and the autism diagnoses, um, he wasn't, he was too social in some ways. Um, he, he was kind of in a strange area for autism and we couldn't get an actual autism diagnosis. So, but we were treating him as he did have autism. He had sensory processing disorder, he had visual processing disorder, auditory processing, he had all the hallmarks of, of a spectrum disorder. We treated it as that until we could get a spectrum disorder diagnosis, and that was not until he was nine years old. And so that was, um, that was the second diagnosis after the apraxia. Um, then we had a third diagnosis when he was 15 of bipolar disorder. And um, that is kind of how our journey moved along mm -hmm. um, and over the years. But um, the, the resources that we, um, that we used were, were um, a lot of me digging on the internet. Um, I kind of became a warrior mom and used a lot of my uh, just plain research and trying to dig and talk to anybody who would talk to me, um, doctors, um, therapists, parents. Just pulling as many resources as, as many could. resources. Um, I ended up talking to a lot of great resources, ended up being the fellow parents in the waiting room. Um, I used a lot of that to help me move forward in, um, in making some other decisions too. And whether that 
person, um, whether that child, fellow child, had a diagnosis of autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, it really didn't matter to me because it, yeah. it just mattered that that child had a disability. I could figure out how it fit into to Jack's You were able to adapt. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was meaningful to me because it was also a parent that was in the same place I was. And I think that's where you want that resources to come from. Yes. If I'm not mistaken. You yes. want those resources to be from someone in similar shoes. Yes. Because then they have the understanding of what they want to be built upon. Yes. What skills to be yes. enhanced. Yes. Absolutely. So Absolutely. based on the journey that you've taken to get resources to Jack, to what, where we are now, and to what you've learned thus far, is there anything that you would have done differently or that you maybe would have pushed more on, looking back on things? Um, no, I, you know, one of the, um, in looking for these resources um, and trying to create more resources, um, one of the things that um, I, I found is a lack of resources and in trying to to create more and more for other parents too because we all just felt like we were dry mm -hmm. and um, in in for our children and so I did help start a um, a support group for families that had children with apraxia specifically for children with apraxia mm -hmm. um, back when Jack was very young and um, with some other parents. So we had a north side Chicago thing going, we had a south side Chicago thing going, we had a city thing, we had a, a nice, um, something nice going. And, um, and then that morphed into um, something larger um, into a nonprofit after a period of time. Mm -hmm. Again, looking for to develop more resources right. for, for parents. Um, so putting those those resources on the internet, um, creating um, actual meetings um, and meeting spaces for parents to, to talk. That's um, wonderful. That that was and that was huge. And this uh, group that you formed was it like on Facebook? Was it a digital group? We it was a digital group. Mm -hmm. It was an in person group. We had walks. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. We did, um, we it, it was. Um, it, it went for several years. Mm -hmm. In fact, oh. I think they still have the apraxia group still exists online, um, oh. and I don't I don't know if they've since COVID. I don't know if they've been oh. doing lots. Um, oh. uh, but I I think as oh. I after um, after a few years, I I was very involved with it early on oh. when I created the group. But then Jack's um, circumstances kind of took over, and I had to. Kind of concentrate Step on away it. for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the topic of resources, Jack, what what is Helping Hand help you build your skills on? Um, uh, uh, Helping Hand, Cam's Helping Hand, building skills, helps my, uh, helps my uh, skills and doing how to learn skills. That's good. And then how many times a week do you visit Helping Hand? Well, you see Jillian two times a week. And you see Kim three, three, three times a week. And you see 
Allison, Allison. What? one time a week. I, I speech with Allison. And to speech with Allison. And why did why did you you advocated for speech for yourself? Why? Because I needed to do what? To you wanted to continue to clear up your speech. Yeah. Right. Because why? So people can understand you better, right? Um, because you're doing what? More money. And because you're you're doing things in the community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you're doing more public speaking. Right. That's awesome. On the so Allison provides speech therapy. Holly, would you be able to share what other therapies from Helping Hands Jack received? Jack, Jack's received music therapy, speech therapy, counseling. Um, counseling has been the big portion of it. Physical therapy. Um, uh, occupational therapy. Um, those are all the therapies that, that are offered. Um, I think that he's, um, and he's been receiving those since he was started as a student. Um, some of those were received in the classroom as he was a student, and then he received them privately as well. Um, and then there were some, some good overlap. Um, and we were doing some outside of um, Helping Hand, but then we kind of morphed everything over to Helping Hand it was a lot easier to, um, especially with him being going to school here, mm -hmm. um, to, uh, it just worked a lot easier. Right. Okay. Well, that's awesome that it all worked out. Um, I know that Jack and you mentioned earlier that it was self-advocacy from himself to continue and pursue speech therapy. Mm -hmm. I know self-advocacy is something that um, others who are... Um, differently able sometimes struggle with. So was that something that Jack ever had trouble with or was he always able to just know what he wanted to achieve and get done? Um, he's, he's learned that over his, um, over time. He's, he's always been a person who has understood more than he's been able to communicate. Once he found words, um, he was better able mm -hmm. to communicate those things. Um, early on, for example, he, you know, we knew that he, I knew, um, it took a while for others to understand that he, he knew the color green, he knew who a person was, um, and then as the words and sounds came along, that he fully understood what was going on. Um, so it was almost like a culmination of the resources he received to build upon that self-act. Yes, yes, and, and that's really how all of these things come together, mm -hmm. all of these pieces. Um, even with, um, for example, in the counseling, um, one of the things that, that Kim works on in the counseling, she's not a, um, a reading specialist, but she reads with him because one of his diagnoses is anxiety. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is a big part of his dyslexic the dyslexic properties um, that, that he has a problem with. Mm -hmm. And so in order to address his dyslexia, um, they read. And um, 
And he, one of the things, another example of his advocacy, um, he found out that Henry Winkler has dyslexia. That's and one of his favorite actors. It is. That's why I want a book. And so he found out that Henry Winkler also not only has dyslexia, but he found out that he wrote children's books. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to read those children's books. And they were a little more advanced than the um, Curious George books that he was reading. They were chapter books. They were chapter books. And he was reading Curious George books. They, but he they have other books that pitch books. He has other books that I can chapter. But he wanted to read the chapter books. And so Kim said, Let, let's go. Let, we'll, we'll figure it out. So that he's on the second book of these chapter books. And that's, he said, I, this is what I want to do. So again, it's the advocacy of, you know, let's, let's read. Um, you know, she, she's doing something that's kind of outside of her realm. He's talking and, and that said that, that's um, the teamwork with Jillian on the occupational end that she's working on his visual end that he has a hard time visually processing. So she has the tracking problems. So she's working on tracking at the same time. It's it's all a team effort. Um, and then on Allison's end, working on the R's, the, that's you know part of the articulation part, um, the A's, the ARs, the, the blending sounds, and putting all of these pieces together. So when he's reading that some of these things are starting to make sense, um, memorizing some of these combinations, all of these things are starting to come together now. And that's the team effort mm -hmm. that, that's coming together by having all of this, you know, the, these three members of the team working together. Right. Jack, you mentioned that you want to write books. Right? Yeah, I'm always write a book. I'm always write games or something. Write games or books. Yeah, or do illusions. Illusions, like a magician almost. Yeah, a magician, I do. I think I'm a magician. I think I become a magician later on in my life. If you were to write books, would you share your story with others? Yeah. That would be really cool. But I know right now, in terms of your personal ventures, you are going to be in Willy Wonka. Yeah. Are you excited for that? Yeah. So that's coming up next month. It's a theater performance. Um, do you know who you're playing? Uh, Augustus Glue. Augustus Glue. And then you're also playing a um, Oompa Loompa, right? Yeah. Are you, which one are you more excited to play? Guess who's Are you excited to play both of them? That's fun. Holly, is there any piece of advice that you, or even resource or insight that you would offer to any families watching who may be in similar shoes? Um, I would. Uh, don't be afraid to talk with your fellow parents in the waiting room. Mm -hmm. That if you meet parents in the waiting room, that I, some of the, I still have relationships with parents that I met in the waiting room. And I know that sounds strange, but that, that's, that's how I formed some of, that's how I formed uh, the, the groups that I did or became part of the groups that I did, um, that I was part of. Um, some of the best friendships that you, you, there's just a great camaraderie um, and you learn so much from your fellow parents mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
and to just um, th there's to, to there's there's always hope. There's always um, there's always someone to ask a question. Don't be afraid to ask questions. There's never a silly question. Um, there there are lots of great doctors out there. There are lots of great um, people out there um, that I. I've always felt like, um, you know, one of the, the things that I felt like on our journey with Jack is that um, we, we were traveling in this underground maze with this light that kept getting blown out. And um, there's always somebody who has a candle um, or a light to light your candle. Like a guide. There, there's always somebody to guide you. There's, and there's a key to a door. And there, there's a door for you, and you'll find that key, and you'll you'll get through there. There, there's. It, it seems like this underground maze is kind of um, it, that you're not going to be able to find your way, but you will. And and there are people down there that you'll bump into that will be helpful. And but you have to you have to be open to to speaking with them, and and know that there are other people that are in your same pathway. Um, so I, just to, to be open to that um, is, I, I think, probably one of the biggest things that I think a lot of parents feel feel lost and closed off. Mm -hmm. And but to, to just be open and and talk to other people. I and I even being so late in this journey too, I'm I'm always open to talk to other parents too, regardless where they are in their journey. I think. I couldn't have said anything better. <laughs> Is there anything you want to share before we wrap up? So I have some friends I know. Shaquille was my mom, and we were hiking when we did both day. It was fun. Are you staying in contact with him? No, no. Jack's met wonderful people, people. along the way. Yeah, Jack's Jack's been around town and um, having started this journey from all the way through preschool. And you know now that he's 27, and uh, I think that I know a lot of people from acting overacting to now. Yes, your acting career. Yeah, you've been in a lot of plays. And now you're in Wonka. That's a big Wonka, deal. yeah. You're in Wonka. You've been in Beauty and the Beast. You've been in. Um, oh, you were talking about some of them. Oh, bye, 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 Bernie. Billy Ashley. Um, Kids in Toyland. Yeah. Billy, Billy went to Africa. He was doing soul stuff. So, if you want to, if you want to talk to him, he he's a very good guy. Mm -hmm. But he's not married now. He's not engaged now. So that. I don't think he's engaged. No. Uh, once he married. I don't know, too. Something just happened. Yeah. <laughs> Life happens. Life, Life happens, happens, Jack. That's yeah. true. Life happens. I mean, he do a solo at some point for a while. Yeah. 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 And I, um, I like write stuff. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. I mean, you're already sharing your story with these kids in our community. I mean, if you can always keep sharing your story through other methods, mm -hmm. like writing your books. Mm -hmm. 